1: Hi, this is Matthew Christopher, creator of the Abandoned America book series, website, and the podcast you're listening to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you're enjoying it so far. If you are, and you'd like to support the podcast and help keep it going, there are three things you can do that'll really help out. The first is simple. Just tell your friends and family about it, or leave a positive review on your podcast platform if they support it. Good word of mouth makes a huge difference. Second, if you'd like to hear early episodes and see exclusive essays and photos that aren't on my website yet, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash abandonedamerica. That's patreo dot com abandonedamerica. Third, if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, just drop me a note at admin at That's a-d-m-i-n at abandonedamerica.org every little bit counts and I've got some really exciting episodes that I think you'll love coming up don't forget you can also visit my website abandonedamerica.us for tons of photo galleries and background info on hundreds of abandoned sites or order my two abandoned America books from your favorite retailer
0: hi I'm Matt Lambrose, photographer and host of the upcoming After the Final Curtain podcast. If you like what you're about to listen to on the Abandoned America podcast, and I'm sure you will, check out the After the Final Curtain podcast. I've been photographing abandoned theaters for more than a decade, and during that time I've met many people trying to bring these buildings back to life. Each episode dives into the history of one historic theater and tells the story of the people trying to save them from the wrecking ball. It'll be available on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts very soon.
1: Abandoned churches have long been a staple of art centered around ruin. Currently, they're still a prominent fixture in photography of derelict spaces, but why are there so many? It's estimated that 75 to 150 houses of worship close per week in the United States alone. Today, we'll explore what is driving this trend and what happens to a church after it closes. Together with my friend Matt Lambros, author of the After the Final Curtain book series, I'll discuss some of the reasons churches might just be the largest growing segment of abandoned spaces, why they can be left to rot for longer than other buildings, and what the challenges are in terms of reusing them. In the second episode, we'll talk to someone who has worked together with a group of preservationists to restore a neglected house of worship, and hear how sometimes even the best intentions can't always save an endangered building. I'm your host, Matthew Christopher, and this is Abandoned America. Hi, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, thank you. How are you? I'm well. I, I've been basically doing my two non-abandoned building things, which are uh, transformers, and I think that's actually about it. <laughs> so I, I had that, two things, but now that we're talking, that's the only one I can think of, probably because that's what I'm looking at. Mm, um,
0: transformers and
1: transformers,
0: are two things.
1: Yes, well, they are two things, because they transform, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So um uh, what have you been up to how are things going
0: I've been you know been good a little a little uh relieved I had a workshop yesterday at the uh, Orpheum Theatre in New Bedford that went rather well You know, that is very cool uh, space and I always enjoy spending time in it, even though I've been there. I don't know. I've lost count at this point.
1: Yeah, I saw your photos of that. Uh, I didn't realize that was a workshop, though. So that's that's terrific. Yeah, it was my
0: second workshop since the whole world stopped for a little bit through the pandemic and probably my last one for 2020. I think the next one won't be until March at this point.
1: So, moving on, what we're talking about today, we have I think a really good episode and a really good subject ahead. It could be I think one that a lot of people are interested in and that is abandoned churches. Uh, why they're abandoned, the history of them and what's done with them. So, yeah, I'm,
0: I'm very excited to talk about this, and especially we have a very interesting guest on the episode.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that, too. Dave Golick from the Chester Historic Preservation Committee will be talking a bit about his experience with Third Presbyterian and their efforts, how they came to get the church, what some of the issues they had with it, and how that story ultimately worked out. So, yeah, we have, I think, a, a really solid episode here tonight. And one of the things that I was thinking about as I was working on the notes for this was... There are probably more abandoned churches than any other type of abandoned building in the United States right now, with the exception of homes. Y-
0: yeah, I, uh, I I think you're right. One article I read said that about six to 10,000 churches uh, close each year in America, which is just like an insane number. To put that into perspective, I've photographed about 200 abandoned theaters in the United States. And I feel like that's a huge number, but I mean, if six to ten thousand are closing every year, not saying that all of these are going abandoned. Some of them are repurposed right away. Some of them are demolished right away. Yeah, you know, I have uh, some friends who that's all almost all they shoot are abandoned churches, and they like they have such a huge catalog of places. It's it's crazy.
1: Yeah, that definitely. If you look at people that are photographers of abandoned buildings right now, this seems to be like the era of photographing churches. And I mean, when you think about that, the numbers that you're talking about, that's really kind of a wild thing, right? And uh, I mean, you would think like, first of all, why even are there this many of these types of buildings? Why would they all be abandoned? And and I think that's something that maybe people aren't aware of. Like they might know of a church that is in their hometown or something like that that's around them, but not necessarily have an idea that this is something that's kind of everywhere.
0: Right. You kind of take it for granted because At least I know I grew up in a town that had three, four, five churches I can think of off the top of my head. And, you know, if it wasn't the church that you went to, at least for me, I grew up attending services at a Methodist church. And I didn't really give a second thought to the other churches in the town. So it's kind of just something that's there. They're always there, you know, and and you don't you don't think about it.
1: And that's one of the things that I think we're going to kind of come to here is because of the fact that there are so many different branches, you know, what that means in terms of places closing and just the variety of places that are out there. So the thing that I was kind of looking at, aside from how many abandoned churches there are, is that this also is going to be a topic that gets into religion and politics, which I know you and I both have obviously a lot of our uh, very strong personal beliefs on, but I think both of us have tried to kind of steer that away from the main bulk of the discussion and how we present our artwork, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I would say that's that's accurate. I don't not talk about my religion, which is uh, none. If anyone asks, I'm pretty uh, open that I am a non-believer. Uh, and happy to talk about religion with anyone, but
1: I don't necessarily put that forward in my work. I think the other thing that's really important that I wanted to mention, too, is that it's very hard when you're doing something like this to paint any religion, even a branch of religion, with one brush. For example, you know, if you look at Judaism, you have everything from sort of very strict orthodoxy to the Reform and Reconstructionist sort of movements. So you have this wide spread of different types of thoughts and different types of approaches, and that's going to be important, too. You, you have a lot of branches in these different things. And so, if I say one thing about a certain type of churches, it's not necessarily going to be applicable to every church. And you look at all these different branches that are out there. I, I remember a long time ago, I had a study on the Pennsylvania Mennonite groups that are out there. And it was really fascinating this class that was kind of understanding the various different things, and with as with a lot of churches, you have these splits over things that are just really seemingly random. For example, there was one church that broke off from another one because they felt that people could only be baptized as an adult, because as a child, you can't make that decision. And you would say, okay, well, you know, that's, that's, I I can understand people might have differences of belief, but bam, you've got two different churches right there. And so that's why when we look at these, they're just such a smattering of different things. And and again, I really try to be careful to A, be respectful of beliefs and B, to go out there with the understanding that one thing that happened in one church isn't going to be the same thing that happened in another. So let's move on here. And why are there so many religious institutions, I think, is kind of what I was I was thinking of starting out with. Like, what what's your take on that, aside from, you know, the fact that I just said there's a million different branches of a million different churches? I
0: mean, the, maybe the fact that this country was a founded freedom of religion. I mean, I feel like that is a big a big reason that there are so many branches and it just started splitting from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's the idea of freedom of religion. There's also kind of the melting pot aspect of this country and the fact that you have so many immigrants coming from so many different places to work here. And so each of them has their own backgrounds, their own beliefs, their own languages, their own songs and hymns that they're going to sing in churches. So when you're starting out and building cities around these little enclaves that are based on, say, you know, you have a Greek population, a German population, a Slovak population, an Irish population, those people are all going to want their own church. And It was interesting, there was one point where I was going to a town where they were consolidating a bunch of churches into one and they had all these different, I mean, it's Catholicism in this case. So it's one overall religion, but they're crunching them all into sort of one building and closing the other four, I think it was, that they were merging. And the guy who was taking me around was the former musical director of those churches. And to amuse himself while I photographed, because let's be honest, photographing places is pretty boring to be a spectator of. It's just a guy going and standing somewhere for a while and then standing else somewhere for a while. Um, (laughs) But uh, to amuse himself, he went up into the choir loft and was playing the organs and singing all the different hymns in the different languages, which he knew. And at this point, they are going to be condensing that into one church, everything's going to be in English. But in this area, I mean, people still sung their hymns in German. So that's the thing that you want to think about when you're talking about these communities is that you have tons of different it's it's almost like the theater thing that we talked about the other day where you would have theaters that are playing to the tastes of different audiences. So anyway, these are also community congregation points for people that are there. I mean, this is something that is very central to the immigrant communities that are coming in and oftentimes too they're going to be who helps you establish yourself there? Even as late as when my my wife came from Ukraine, which was at that point part of the Soviet Union, um, the churches, the well, the, they were they were synagogues. She's she's Jewish, but. The synagogues were places that, when you came and you didn't know anybody, and you didn't necessarily have any money, you didn't have any way of assimilating into the culture. Nobody spoke your language. That was the place that you would kind of go to get footing on things. And and they did quite a lot in terms of these programs to help people kind of adapt to society. And the other thing too that this is seems like a bit of a minor point, but it's it's kind of funny. You wouldn't necessarily think of it right off the top of your head. Is people are walking a lot more so there's two churches in Philadelphia, St. Boniface and St. Bonaventure, that are both ones that I photographed. The one church was founded because people were sick of walking like, you know, 20 blocks uh, to get to the church. So they wanted their own church. In that case, it's still a German congregation, but they just didn't like having to walk to a different part of the city. So, I mean, in that sense, you're basically getting something where in a, a city like Philadelphia or Detroit or whatever, you have tons and tons tons of these buildings that are being constructed all over the place and kind of peppered throughout the rest of the buildings.
0: Yeah, it's funny to hear that the congregation was so big that they uh, that it split in two and was able to do that. For a while when I was in college, I lived in uh, a town in, in northern Massachusetts on the North Shore that uh, there was a church that they the congregation became very small and the, like, the head organization of the church closed it. So me having an interest in abandoned buildings was interested in the building. And they tried to merge with a or another town over's church. And the people from the first church didn't want to drive to the new town. So they stopped going. So they ended up finding another pastor for the initial church and uh, reopened it. But then all the people didn't like the new pastor. Right. So they basically complained again. So they moved her somewhere else and closed the church and said, you guys can either drive to the the church that we want you to go to. There isn't enough of a congregation for this place to be open. And you guys are complaining about the new pastor we got for you. So it's over. And as far as I know, I I believe the interior has since has been, it's either been demolished or it was
1: repurposed as for something else. But uh, I just found that amusing. Well, and that kind of is a good point, too, that ties back into the whole splitting of different churches and the the difference in beliefs, because more than just about anything else in terms of buildings that are out there, it's going to be whether you click with the person who is leading that congregation, and whether you agree with their beliefs. And so that's another factor too, in terms of multiples of buildings. Is you might have one that's a very conservative church, and another that's very progressive, and uh, that's going to be something where people are going to want to choose to go to one or the other as well. So as these places are being built in the urban centers, these are these are places that they're really looking to try and rival and outdo the European cathedrals in a lot of cases. I mean, why would you not do something better? That was kind of the whole point of America, right? Right. So you're going to want to go and do something that's going to stand the test of time, that's going to really speak to the greatness of your community, the greatness of your country, the strength that you have, and your value too. I mean, that's another thing that you think of these immigrant communities. This is their way of kind of, you know, planting a flag somewhere in essence and saying that they matter to it. So these people saved tons of money uh, to build them. They did fundraising drives. You had people that were trades folk from the immigrant communities that would use skills they had that they were like, if they were a carpenter, a woodworker in Germany, they would do the carpentry and woodwork. And so that's why these buildings are so distinctive in a lot of cases, why your Irish church is going to look different than your German one, which is going to look different than your, you know, say if you have one that's a Slovak church, they're all bringing in things. And they're also importing goods from their home communities. They're bringing stained glass, from artisans and, and trying to bring things that are going to remind them of home and that are going to give them that sense of kind of belonging, both where they're at and yet reflect the tie of where they were before. Also, kind of an interesting thing too. They're using a lot of the materials that are around that area, so they're reflective of that. They have timber or locally quarried stone. Another thing too that I, I thought was actually really fascinating was there was a church in uh, I was out by Ashley Pennsylvania, and that's a very big coal region. There used to be a big Gricker there. And in their altar, they actually, it's it's like partly made of coal. So yeah, yeah, it was really cool. And it has like the carvings that are on it are like a miner's helmet and like a pickaxe and various other mining related things. So it's really interesting in that sense that you have this kind of merging of the present and the past that are there. And so each one of these buildings is going to be really unique in a lot of ways in terms of the the community artists that they use, the painters, things like that. So as you mentioned, they they grow really quickly, too. they're They're these sort of small, rough places of worship, like uh, one of the ones that I was looking into was Ascension of our Lord Church in Philadelphia. That started in a former candy store. So <laughs> yeah, that was where that was where their first meeting place was was a candy store. And 10 years later, they need a bigger building because they're really growing. So they start raising funds and they start constructing it. And around 1900, I think it was, they were already kind of in the works of building a new church. And the way they did this, like I said, they had these kind of various festivals and fundraisers. They went out to people that were neighbors that weren't necessarily even in the church. They were just people that were around there. And they said, hey, you know, it'd be great if we had this church here. And would you donate to it? And there was really, I think, a stronger sense of community back then. But So there's this write-up in the Philadelphia Inquirer of one of their summer carnivals in 1906 that, I mean, tell me if this doesn't sound like this would be kind of a really great time, especially considering we're in a year where you you can't really go out and do anything. They said, quote, excellent music was provided for those who wish to participate in dances upon the asphalted street. Noting, by the way, they are pointing out it has asphalt, you know, that's... uh, (laughs) That's a cool thing. A new thing. Yeah. Abundant illumination was supplied by various colored incandescent lights while festoons of Japanese lanterns were strung along the curb lines and stretched across the street. There were both instrumental and vocal music, a vaudeville show, and moving pictures. Old-fashioned straw rides and large sightseeing automobile conveyed many on short but entertaining excursions about Kensington. Another attractive feature was the bevy of pretty summer girls, who dispensed light refreshments, ice cream, and sweetmeats, while others sold flowers and fancy articles. There was also a gypsy fortune teller and go-karts, donkeys, and other amusements for children. Altogether, the carnival was one of the most varied and novel of its kind ever held in the city. So, you know, you think about that, they're putting on a pretty big production there, and I'm sure there are a lot of people that are kind of donating their services and their time to do this. I don't know, would you go to that, Matt? Yeah, sounds like a fun time. Sounds like a street fair. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I haven't gone to any street fairs with like donkeys and go-karts and summer girls, whatever that is, and all all the other stuff that they had. I don't know. I would have gone. At this point, the church keeps growing. Ascension keeps going. And uh, the upper church is something that they need to expand to. So at this point, it was a basement chapel. So they build this upper church for about seven hundred thousand dollars is how much they raise for it. Any any guess how much that is in like today money? What year was this? Uh it would have been like the nineteen teens. Uh about five five million. Ten. Oh Good guess. yeah i mean but like 10 million that's that's a ton of money yeah and so you know this is something that people are really excited about and they're really putting a lot into so i guess moving forward a bit what happened then if these churches are just growing and growing and growing and growing and they're going into the you know 30s and 40s strong and 50s strong why did they start to slump? well budgets
0: and butts you need butts and seats same, it's the same with theaters. You know, if you don't have a large enough, you don't keep your congregation growing, and donating every uh, every Sunday or whichever day they are uh, practicing. Your you know your upkeep is um, especially on you know ornate buildings is a lot. And sure, it's probably also uh, another thing that you can take away from theaters. They're large, like large cavernous structures, so they're really hard to heat and really hard to cool in in, uh, in
1: the summer. So that's very expensive. Especially, yeah, once you start moving on to an expectation that people have of like air conditioning. Exactly. Or- so but the thing that really was, I think the first nail in the coffin was white flight. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you see that that's going to be probably the answer to so much in terms of the various urban buildings. I mean, that we talked about that a bit in the theater episode. Um, you, know, you have people that are leaving the cities. They're going to live in the suburbs. They're, those are the people that are going to have enough money to leave the city. So they're going to be taking their money with them and building new suburban churches. And the people who are still living in the neighborhoods may have been excluded for them. So for example, when you look at Ascension, and this is fast forwarding a bit down the road here. You know, this is like the 90s or 2000s uh, when they're they're really trying to figure out ways of making it work with this building. And they're reaching out to the Latino community that's in that area, like the Puerto Rican community in particular, that's in the Kensington area. And I'm reading about like how segregated the community was before and how there were points where, like, if you were one of the Puerto Rican members, you could not come into this neighborhood. And it was a lot of people at Ascension Church that were kind of establishing those norms and I mean I'm not going to point fingers one way or another I didn't live in the neighborhood but let's say that there's that sort of bad blood you know and between people that are in the area and they're like well look you're a person of color you're not allowed near our church and then a couple decades later they're like oh hey would you want to help us out with some fundraising you'd be like nope, I have yeah. no interest in going there
0: that wouldn't that wouldn't I don't think that would work too well
1: Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at why wouldn't the people that remain in that area support the church, again, this is not going to be all cases, but there's a very real possibility that the people that were left in that community were excluded from that. And that's one of the things you hear about with churches, too, even among the different types. Like if you were in the German church, you wouldn't go to the Irish church. Like that was not a thing that was done so much. So they were really kind of divided along uh, racial and ethnic lines um, in that sense. And, you know, as time went on, they started to open up. I think there was a lot, maybe more, a push towards inclusivity and towards welcoming other people in, but you could argue that some of the damage had already been done at that point. The other thing too, looking at Kensington, which is where Ascension of Our Lord is, uh, it's a Philadelphia neighborhood job loss you know, that was a major, major industrial center. They made like Stetson hats and they made, uh, there was, was, I think, a bunch of tobacco uh, places that were there. They had all these various industries that are there, and then they just start to slump. So in 1980, 17% of the population is living below poverty level. And by 2010, that's like 41%. Kensington, by the way, is now referred to in major newspapers is the Walmart of heroin so yeah i mean you look at an area like that and you know you have all these people that are leaving with their money the industries are closing down in those areas where's the money coming from to keep this up? Like, how are you going to go and keep up a $10 million church when you may be struggling just to get food? And I think that's one of the things that that you really start to see too. And then, as you pointed out, you know, going back to what you were talking about, which is kind of the death spiral of old buildings, which is you have fewer people that are coming, so there's less revenue to repair the building, starts to get in worse shape. So less people come and it just goes around and around and around. And finally, one of the other things, too, that I was looking at is there's just this big change in the idea of community meeting spaces, right? I mean, Elks Lodges, not popular anymore. Moose Lodges and Mason Lodges, they're not as big of a thing like social clubs, things like that. We don't really have them in the same sense. So this idea of a church being a point of congregation and a sort of nexus of interacting with your community, like there are a lot of other ways to do that right now,
0: right? Yeah. And something that I've kind of noticed, you know, in uh, where I live in, I live in the South Shore of Massachusetts right now. But last summer, there's an Elks Lodge or a Lions Club that every year raises the money to do the fireworks on the Fourth of July. And this is just a little slightly off topic. Last year, they they l- could not raise enough money because there's only four members.
1: Right, right, exactly.
0: Uh, yeah, so that's uh, it's sad, but something that I have noticed, at least around here, coming out of the pandemic, is that every single church that I've gone by has a big sign on their sign out front said, "Join us on Sunday or watch on Zoom, Facebook, you know, and have a they have a URL of where." You can watch the service from home. And I think that's something that a lot of churches
1: were forced to adapt or or die because of this. Right. But the thing that you kind of want to pinpoint on that is it's because of COVID. Yes. I mean, there were people that were doing things like that before. There were televangelists before, and there are people that are doing various not on location services, but that really wasn't the norm. No, no, because they wanted you, they wanted butts and seats at home. Right. Why are you going to pay to keep up their beautiful ceiling if that happens? So, yeah, I mean, these are all some of the reasons that uh, churches are closing. But one of the biggest ones is not as many people are religious. And so I was looking over the stats from this and I know stats can be really boring, but I think they're really revealing here. So I'm going to just sort of ask you about a couple of them. But the point is, you know, that from 1960 to 2018, people who identified as Christians went from 233 million to 178. And that may not sound like a lot, but there's also these th- these numbers that are along age lines. So, for example, like how many boomers would you say identify as Christians right now? 80 uh, percent. Very good. 76. And what about millennials? 40 Forty nine. Ah. You're 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 right in the ballpark. So, uh, what about boomers who say that they are not religious or unaffiliated? Uh, I would say it's probably ten percent. Oh my good lord! We did not coordinate this beforehand, people. That is the exact number. So you are, uh, you are doing very good in your numbers. What about millennials? How many would you say? 30%. 40. Yeah. Really? So 40? you that's think about that. I mean, that's a big gap right there. That's a huge age gap. And it, it gets even uh, wider if you look at like the silent generation and people that are younger than millennials. They're people that just really aren't connecting with the churches and that they aren't going to them. They're not attending services. They're not putting their money into it. Um, and again, I'm not saying that no millennials are religious or millennials are killing churches. Yeah. Uh, so
0: there's 49% of the millennials that are still identified as, you know, religious or, but I'd be interested in finding out what percent of that 49 actually att- actively attends services.
1: Right. And, you know, that's the thing that when we get into the Catholic church in a minute or two, I can give you a few more numbers on that too, but Right, exactly. There are people that are saying, okay, well, I identify as a Christian, but I'm not necessarily going to anything. Here's an interesting thing. What do you think about conservatives with religious affiliation? Is that going up or down? Down. Wrong. I would have uh, thought that too. I was a little surprised by some of the facts that I found out about this. So Republicans with no religious affiliation tripled since the 1990s. Tripled. and. Well, what about the alt right? What about the really fringe far right groups? What do you think their religious affiliations? Where, where's the wind blowing there? That's going up. Incorrect. Really incorrect. Um, Speaking yeah. as someone who has a family member who is a member of the alt right who is
0: newly religious, I'm surprised.
1: Well, again, I mean, I can't say here you can't speak to every single person in their beliefs because beliefs are as different as people. But overall, one of the trends they were talking about with the alt-right is that they tend to reject the universal inclusion and morality of church-based religion for nationalism and race-based identity.
0: Oh, so, so they um, just replaced one religion with another.
1: Essentially. And and you have people like Richard Spencer, who is publishes stuff like like in his magazine, whatever it was, that's like why i am a pagan. There's a lot more of, of this shift to these kind of different non-Christian based religions. And One of the things, one of the quotes that I pulled that I thought was really interesting was critics of Christianity on alternative right and the alternative right usually blame it for its universalism. So, it's, it's actually interesting, like you would think in terms of numbers, uh, maybe being on the more liberal end of things ourselves, that, you know, churches might be playing a role or they might be pushing for people to perhaps be less tolerant. But actually you find out that in a lot of cases, people that are in churches are going to be a, a little more tolerant of people like immigrants and things like that. So um, and that doesn't work too well with the alt-right. Um, here's another one. How do you think black churches are going? I feel like I got it wrong both times. (laughs) That's okay. I got it wrong too. That's why I had these facts because they kind of blew my mind a bit. Well, so I'm going to base this on something, a theater turned church uh, going down. Okay, so you were correct in that sense. And they said Black churches have typically tended to be very strong in maintaining membership, much more so than many white congregations. But even Black churches are suffering losses. And for example, they were saying that there's a contingent of the Black Lives Matters members that are rejecting their churches for sexism, homophobia and complacency with racial injustice. So even those churches are suffering losses. It's kind of interesting when you look about this is it's, it's like churches can't win, <laughs> you know? Like if you're liberal, you're tending to be more secular and move away from the church. If you're conservative, those people are moving away from the church. And so I was thinking like, why is this happening? And there's this article in The Atlantic called Breaking Faith. And the concept that they had that I thought was really interesting was they said losing faith in America's political and economic system may lead to loss of faith in organized religion. And they backed that up by saying the least religiously affiliated people are the most likely to vote for revolutionary change. <laughs> so you have a lot more people, if that's true, that are disenfranchised from the system, either on the left or the right, you know, that are feeling further cut off from America, the American dream and things like that. And for whatever reason, that's, that's uh, spilling over into their views on religion. And you know, you have a lot of people in both communities that are struggling with jobs, that are struggling with money. Yeah, it seems like churches are really kind of in a rock and a hard place in that sense. In that, you know, no matter which way they move as a whole, it's going to kind of wind up leading to closed doors. And I, and I think overall that's because Again, you know, there's that communal meeting places thing, people aren't doing as much, people are just moving away from it. The final word on this was the Catholic church. So what I was reading on that is that that is the largest church denomination since the third century, which is kind of mind blowing. So since the 1960s, four people have left the church for everyone converted. That's I mean, lot. that's, Yeah, that's a ton. From the 1960s, they went from about 58,000 priests to about 37,000 and half of those are over 65. So you really are kind of aging out a lot of these constituents and that's what you're seeing in also your Elks Clubs and the various other social groups as they're just not getting younger people in. And finally, on the Catholic Church, they said since the 60s again, baptisms of infants have dropped by half, adults by over two-thirds, and masses down by 55%. Wow. Yeah, so it's a huge sea change here. Yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely. So overall, and we're kind of getting to what you said at the opening about numbers of churches, they said 70— 70% of churches are plateauing or declining, while only 30% of churches are adding new members. So when you look at the numbers of churches that are closing every year, there's the kind of upward estimate of over 10,000 a year. And there's the more conservative estimate, which is like 4,000 to 8,000 closing yearly. But even in the conservative estimate, that's 75 to 150 churches closing a week. That is a massive number. Well wow. right. That's if you did two hundred theaters, yeah, you know, that's that's like two hundred new theaters a week practically. Oh, that would be the dream. <laughs> i know that'd be terrible for you right
0: yeah. oh well, i mean honestly i shouldn't say that i'm gonna knock on some wood because of the current crisis right. we want to keep theaters yeah I, I don't want that to happen and it might happen unfortunately
1: well i think you and i are both in this kind of weird position where we love abandoned spaces we love photographing them but we're also like really aware of the cost
0: yeah like you know i love theaters i love the architecture of theaters But part of it is I want them to be restored and reopened and reused. I don't want them to be abandoned. I'm not looking for more abandoned theaters to exist.
1: But if somebody just like, you know, said, hey, Matt Lambrose, you know what? I just I just built 200 abandoned theaters just for you.
0: First, I'd be like, how did you get them to look so abandoned? Right. Why didn't you just make them look nice? but thank you. So I'll go shoot them now.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I, I think both of us are in that position where we really appreciate the buildings that are in the state that they're in, but we're aware that they're endangered. We're aware that this is not a healthy condition for them to be in. So that being said, back to the churches in closing, it's interesting because closing even successful churches can be revenue windfall in the short term. Now, this is something that was kind of passed on to me secondhand from somebody who is working a lot with the churches in Western Pennsylvania, Catholic churches in particular. So, you know, it's hearsay. I can't really vouch for the veracity of this or not. But basically what he said was that every time the Catholic church was closing a church, they're kind of taking the bank fund of that and sucking it up into the larger... Pool of money that they have. So you could actually have a church that's doing pretty good. And because of the fact that they're doing pretty good, because they have endowments and people that have willed money to them and all this stuff, they're actually like a really prime target for closing. And the story that he told me about was where this guy who was like the pastor of the church was told to read this little speech, you know, before. Uh, one of his sermons, and basically the speech was almost nothing. It was like this church is closed. This church is now reopened, and nobody thought anything of it because it was just like a sentence. And wh- you know what's that about? Why would you think anything of it? They didn't really think that there would be any any problems from it until they went to I think it was roof repairs that they had to do, and they went to look into the money that they had, and it was gone because. In the process of closing and reopening the church, the money that the church had had was sucked up to kind of the higher levels. Now, again, I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that this will, A, really piss off that I said this, and it's not me making up the story, it's somebody else. Telling me a story. So, but it does kind of have that sense of truth about it and that it's it's just such a weird thing, a weirdly specific thing. And it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. If you're the Catholic church and you're hurting for money and you can get that money from closing churches down and potentially selling off the land, why wouldn't you do it? Uh, aside from the fact that, you know, it it really, really hurts the congregations. And so when you look at these places that are closing, you really just see these very emotional and painful efforts to try and save their building. And there's just this tremendous resentment that they have um, and anger when their church finally closes. And that ultimately leads to a uh, very deep sadness and, and resignation. The uh, Church of the Transfiguration in Philadelphia, um, they had basically, when they demolished it, there were people that went in and took pieces of the building and were using them for uh, like their paving stones for their garden or their yards or things like that. So, you know, basically, yeah, you, you think about this. It's something that is, is really, really difficult for the people that are going through. So moving on to the last part of this here, we have the properties being hard to rehab. And you have the fact that people don't like to see the churches torn down. They don't like to see them empty. But reuse has a lot of really difficult things about it. For example, what type of business can go in? You can't have a, a you know, a nightclub for example or people you you may have it in certain areas but there are a lot of people that are going to be annoyed if you have something that they consider sacrilegious in a building like that the other thing too is as you pointed out churches are really hard to heat yep. and very hard to maintain. And a lot of them haven't been maintained for a long time. So if you're a developer and you buy the property, you're either looking for the land or you're looking for the school and the rectory, which are very easy to flip over into another type of building in the church, which isn't, is usually what winds up getting torn down. And if you can't tear it down because of historic ordinances, you do the demolition by neglect route, and you just let it fall apart until at some point or another, it has to be torn down. You said you had looked a little bit into church reuses and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, so there was a, there was a church in Boston, it was uh, St. Alphonsus Hall. Probably the first abandoned religious. No, that's not true. There was another one before that. One of the first religious, abandoned religious structures that I, I photographed or I explored. And the, uh, the church, it was part of the mission church complex in the uh, Mission Hill neighborhood of Boston, and the, that church is fine, but the, the rectory and the school and the theater, there's a theater building, which uh, with me, all things circle back to theaters. They, it, they were closed, and they have been closed for a little bit, and it was determined, I think, that the, all three buildings were, they were planning to demolish them and turn it into a uh, 24-story apartment tower, and then it was determined that the rectory and the school were were in good shape and could uh, could be reused, and I think they've been converted to condos. And the theater was just gutted, like at the same around the same time, and just to the brick wall. And there's as no change; it's still there. It's just gutted. The you know conspiracy theorist in me thinks that it was to prevent any attempt at a like uh, a preservation effort from outside. I have no evidence of that, so that could be completely wrong. But it, it's been sitting there, nothing has been done with it. With theaters, I really like to look into uh, like theaters that have been turned into other things and how they're used. And part of that, it, it really, that extends to other abandoned buildings. And so, for example, my favorite abandoned church is one in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Church Brew Works. Church Brew Works. Uh, yes, yes, it is. It is uh,
1: one of my, it's a brewery, which is, and a church all in one. So I think yeah, it's, it's a beautiful building too. They actually did a really nice job of keeping the interior uh, character to it.
0: They really did. And, uh, you know, while it is not my favorite beer, the atmosphere makes up for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed that place. And I would highly recommend that to anybody who's going to the Pittsburgh area to check out because it is a very cool building. And also when I was giving a presentation in Pittsburgh one time, they offered me free food uh, and beer come over there, which I thought was super nice of them. I was uh, dealing uh-huh. with the Pittsburgh History and Landmarks Foundation. So yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that you see that they get turned into of the, the two things we've kind of hit on them. One is condos, because everything's condos. There's nothing that isn't condos that, that in this day and age. And the other is restaurants slash breweries. So those are kind of the two biggest things that uh, churches get turned into. Any other thoughts on uh, what they reuses that they have, or
0: so I I have sort of an interesting interesting reuse thing that ties with churches, but is not about a building that started out as a church. So when a lot of theaters started to close in the 70s and 80s, some a lot of them were saved by churches because a lot of them, you know, churches are tax exempt. They were able to buy a lot of these large theaters for very low prices. Um, for example, the, the Lowe's Valencia Theater in Jamaica, Queens, what is uh, one of the five New York City wonder theaters. It's an atmospheric theater, uh, and we'll put a link to some photos of it in the show notes. It uh, was taken over by the church. It became the Tabernacle of Prayer for All People. Um, it's a 3,000-seat theater, and it was converted into a church, and they would fill it. Uh, and, you know, they didn't have to pay, pay tax on the building. And I, when I went on a tour, uh, the the woman giving the tour said that, uh, yes, our congregation is, very, is down quite a bit, but they've kept the building up and done amazing work to it. And they said the last time that it was full was when, I think it was in 2008, when Pastor Mason Betha, who you might know as the rapper Mace from the 90s, came and gave a sermon. But it's just an interesting thing to me that... You know, we're talking a lot about churches closing over the years, and a lot of churches actually swooped in and have saved and preserved theaters, and obviously a lot of them end up closing anyway.
1: But Right. Well, you still have that. You still have uh, not just theaters, but, I mean, storefront churches and churches that have gone into malls. So it's kind of interesting, like the actual church buildings are really hard to maintain, they don't have the craftspeople, the repairs that they need are phenomenally expensive, the basic, the materials, the materials that they use, like the old timber that they had, the really thick uh, timber that they had that's just not around, the quarried stone might not be available anymore. So uh, that's something that, you know, those buildings are falling into ruin, but then you still have these other congregations that are popping up. And in fact, it's interesting too, a lot of the urban centers in the Northeast, for example, their stained glass and their pews and things like that are being reused by churches and they're popping up in like Georgia, for example. There's a, a pretty big migration of. Of church materials that are moving south. But the one thing that you kind of mentioned here was the tax exemption thing. And that's one of the reasons why so many of these places can sit abandoned is because you can have a congregation that vanishes, that folds. And because there's no property taxes that are due on it, the church can just sit there for forever and in sort of legal limbo as to who owns it. That's another problem that comes up. So I was looking into rehab uses too. And I was kind of looking at some of the things that people have come up with. And there's some pretty fun and interesting things. For example, in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, in the uh, South Williamsport Methodist Church, they converted it into a kids' fun center. So the thing says, kids were actually encouraged to run and scream in the church after the South Williamsport Methodist Church was converted into an indoor maze of playgrounds, slides, climbing walls, and video games, which sounds pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, that sounds great. You know, I think, I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. One of the other ones that you see fairly frequently, relatively frequently is bookstores going into churches. So there are a number of bookstores that that has happened with. One of the other odd duck ones was in Troy, New York, the Phi Sigma Kappa frat bought St. Francis de Sales and turned it into a frat house, which is uh, pretty crazy to think about. I mean, at least the picture in the initial thing where they were talking about them buying it and using it, the church looked in really great condition. My feeling is that as long as they're keeping the church up, which, you know, frats aren't really super known for doing um, with buildings they're in, but if they're keeping the building up, then uh, good for them. Williams Grove Amusement Park. I was just going to bring that one up. The Laser Tag arena? The Laser Tag arena, yep. Yep. Um, I actually, I think, uh, photographed that at one point a long time ago. And the one that is oddly, what if you had to pick one up? And don't cheat and look online. What uh, if you had to pick one oddball thing that pops up in churches Uh, fairly frequently? Pops up in churches frequently? Yes. I don't know. Skate parks. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there's a park called Skaterham. That's an indoor skate park that's been operating for more than a decade out of an abandoned church in Surrey, England. There's Chaos Temple spelled with a K, so you know they're edgy. Chaos Temple in Spain. And that is covered, the interior of that is covered with this really wild artwork. That's something that I feel like we should probably put a link to in the in the notes for the episode because it's just such a wild looking place. There's Arnhem Church in Netherlands. And so yeah, I have I have one that's uh the Atlanta
0: Freethought Society. Uh, took over an abandoned church in Atlanta, and they're an atheist group, and that's their headquarters now.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they probably uh, probably enjoy that quite a bit as they go in. So, the last thing here before we go on to our our interview, and the interview is going to kind of tell a lot of a lot of these things, but from a more personal perspective of one specific building and somebody's experience with it. So the final question is, why do you care about these places? Like, if you're not of that particular congregation, if you're uh, agnostic or something, why do you care about these places? What does it matter if they're abandoned or torn down?
0: I would say there are, you know, there are some that... (sighs) and I would say this for theaters too some that are very plain nondescript you know just not architecturally interesting buildings and then yeah I really don't mind if they're torn down like if someone tears down like a storefront church and a building is right. just a plain very plain building but you don't have to be religious to appreciate uh beautiful architecture mm-hmm. and about five minutes ago where you said that you know, part of the reason some of these places are becoming coming to disrepair is because there really isn't a lot of people who know or aren't a lot of people who know how to repair them. The trade, to, to build them and to uh, maintain them, it's not around anymore. You know, uh, so it's it's like not a lost art because, you know, I know about four or five organizations that do do this just based
1: on my work. Um, but, you know, that's it's very expensive. Right. It's like with theaters where you used to have these industries that were like, we're going to mass produce the molding. Exactly. For exactly. those places. And now you don't have that anymore. So it's, it's kind of like when you're looking at a place that might've been mass produced and now everything has to be custom built for yeah. it. You know, you look at, first of all, the way that they're built, the materials that they use, the codes that you have to keep up. It's very challenging, but the point of why they're important, I think you really made a lot of good points with that. Um, In my, in sort of my list of things that I was thinking of, uh, one thing is uh, the artistic merit of a building, you know, theaters and churches. I've said this again and again. I've said it before. I'll repeat it in the future. They're the only buildings that I can think of off the top of my head that are built to be a work of art, you know, in a theater's case, it's there to sort of entertain you and take you away from your ordinary life, as you've pointed out. Before. And in a church, it's there to elevate you and to you know, make you look to the heavens. I mean, that's why they have the high roofs. So everything else is form with some fun, or I'm, I'm sorry, function with some form thrown in. Mm-hmm. And a theater or a church of the type that we're talking about, yeah, I mean, obviously not the uh, candy store storefront one, right? Uh, maybe really cool candy store. I don't know. But like those buildings were made to be. Artwork because they were intended to give you a sense of awe and inspiration. So whether or not you are of that religion, I think that's really a factor. There's the architectural relevance, which, you know, you touched on in terms of the difficulty of making some of stuff, the stuff, uh, the materials and, and all that. And, and the styles that they were built in. So they're often architecturally significant. And again, I mean, you think about it and the numbers that these churches are closing, if you're talking about thousands and thousands of churches closing every year, they're blinking out at a rate where you may have a really noted architect and this is his last church. Yeah. And it just got torn down and nobody even really knew it was a thing. as As you pointed out with the gutting, of that theater. A lot of times people who are developers or demo companies, they want to get it done before people can really realize what's getting torn down because otherwise it it draws it out, it makes it more expensive. So another thing is there's the historical significance of the area, but there's also the cultural significance. So, you know, think back to that guy who was the music director in that church, who was singing the hymns of all the different congregations and everything. When you merge those churches together, you lose all of that sort of different flavor that uh, that community was originally made up of, and those those people may have moved to completely different areas, but it's still an important part of the town. Uh, it's an important part of, like I said, the the history of the people who came there. So when you lose these buildings, that's gone forever. I would never say that it's a good thing to see a building get destroyed or torn down. And and again, I mean, there's stuff where you're like, okay, well, that's just basically a box with some windows. But in a lot of cases, you know, like your, your background as we're talking on Zoom here is the City Methodist Church in Gary, and that church was a -a one-of-a-kind building, and it's got a really fascinating history that I hope that we can get into when we talk about Gary sometime in the future, um, because that church deserves a, a bit more attention on its own, but, you know, All of these places are kind of being left as rubbish. And, you know, that's something that I fear that is really going to be regrettable down the the road, especially when you look at what we're replacing things with, which is Pretty much trash architecture that is designed to be anom- anonymous and, and boring, essentially, because you know that way you can turn your target into an Arby's or a whatever. You know you can you can you can take one place when your Apple Applebee's closes, you can put a Chili's in later, and all you have to do is slap up a different sign. That's kind of the architectural ethos now. So yeah, do you have uh, any sort of final thoughts or anything you want to add before? I know I did a lot of the talking on this. one. I'm sorry, but I, uh, you know, I kind of got on a rip with with researching this stuff. No, I always find
0: that at least from talking to you and also in knowing you, that it's better to let you to go and chime in when I can than to interrupt. But I, I you know, I I think that if you went and asked me in you know 2005 2006 what should we do with the churches? Like, well, there's these, you know, churches are closing. I would have said, get rid of them all. There shouldn't be any churches, no, no religion. And I think that and photographing more of them and photographing more theaters and talking to people who took a, an old theater and turned it into a church. Um, it's given me more of an appreciation for them. And, and I agree that, you know, if when they're gone, they're gone. And even if you can't, you don't have the congregation to open them as a church I think that some form of adaptive reuse is great. I mean, yeah, we talked about the church brew works. That's, they turned a church into a successful business. It's still, you know, it's still there. I mean, I'm sure there are some people who are upset about it being used that way. But, you know, if, if someone with if a family who from Pittsburgh, you know, wanted to show their kids where their grandparents got married and they got married in that church, they can still go to it. It's not a, it's not a wreck. You know, it's, uh,
1: it, it's still there. And get a nice flatbread pizza and a beer while they're at it, too.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think their (laughs) wings were pretty good, if I remember correctly.
1: Yeah, so that's, I mean, I think that's a, a really sort of nice bit to end this on. And now let's move on to talking to Dave Gulick, who is going to tell us about their plans for turning the Third Presbyterian Church in Chester into a community center was what their plan was, and then how that eventually unfolded. I think that'll be a really interesting one for people that aren't familiar with the story because uh, that one in particular has a a very kind of compelling background to it. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Hope you join us in the second part of this episode. And if you'd like to see more of Matt Lambrose's work, You can do so on After the Final Curtain, uh, his website, or his Patreon, which is also After the Final Curtain, his book series, which is also After the Final Curtain, and his upcoming After the Final Curtain podcast. Likewise, you can find me at Abandoned America on social media, Patreon, where you can find upcoming podcasts, galleries to my website, book chapters, things like that. I have two Abandoned America books. And that's it for the pluggables. I will see you next episode. Thanks.